Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Isaiah 49 is our text this morning. While you're turning there, one of the best things that I've ever uh, purchased for myself cost about 20 bucks. $20, and it is called the Baco Light Bulb Changer Kit. The Baco Light Bulb Changer Kit. What it is, it's pretty much this pole that extends to 11 feet, and it helps me to, uh, you know, to change light bulbs so I don't have to drag the ladder around my house. It, it, it's got a number of different, um, you know, set or, or fixtures on it so that I can change different kinds of light bulbs at different heights. Because here's the reality. Nobody told me that a massive part of being a dad was light bulbs. I mean, like, just a giant part. I'm, I'm either turning off lights, or I'm paying for lights, or I'm replacing light bulbs. In fact, I got so frustrated with it this last week. And besides, I'll tell you this. The little box that says last 13 years, they are flat lying, all right? I bought 13-year lights last year, all right? And I'm replacing them now. I looked around my house last night, and I have 170 light bulbs installed in our house somewhere. Whoever built my house really liked light, okay? So they put light bulbs everywhere. And that's not even counting lamps, all right? That's just a 170 light bulbs. And I feel like I have to change them out every couple of weeks. And so I bought this extension thing. Really cool. It, it helps me to uh, kind of change out the light bulbs there. One of the extensions on it is this little suction cup, okay? Uh, we have these recessed lights, and it really helps you. You kind of run it up there, and you stick it onto the light, and you turn it, and it'll come out, and, and uh, you put the new one on there and you put it up there and you pull this little string and it will, will release the extension or the, the suction cup off of that light. One time I didn't have the string attached and I thought this will work. I, I can. How strong can the suction actually be, right? So I went ahead and, and, and popped that light on there and I ran up there and I installed the light there and then I figured I'm just going to pull on this thing real hard um, to, to, to make it let loose, right? It's just a suction cup. It's that big. It's not going to do anything. Um, and surprisingly, I did that but it didn't break the bulb. In fact, I was shocked that the suction was both tight enough and the light bulb was strong enough. I think I could have swung on that stick right there and, and held on that. So I ended up having to go get the stepladder and bring it to the place and, and climb up there and make the little suction cup release off of that light bulb. In fact, here's my point. The um, tool that has one job, this one job that this one tool is supposed to do, if I don't have that string, it's absolutely useless to me. The one job that this tool is supposed to do, the purpose that I bought this tool for was to change light bulbs, to hold the light bulb, take it up there and release it. And if it cannot do that, then it's absolutely worthless to me. There's a number of things in your life that uh, have one function. One designed reason. This tool does one thing. For instance, coasters. Coasters do only one thing. They're kind of handy to have around. And if they don't do that thing, then they're not much use. Uh, cars are equipped with this thing called a turn signal. Turn signals have one function. A lot of people don't employ that function, but it's there and it's handy. It's something that people do. I have a little device 
a precious device to me called a Kindle. This Kindle can do nothing other than display books so that I can read them. You can't even play games on this Kindle, but it does that one thing, and I love it because it does that one thing. Here's my point, and eventually what I'm trying to get to is this. When God established us, when God formed the church, he gave the church a purpose. One thing that it was supposed to do. And yet, I fear, and I'm asking, and I wonder, what would happen, or how likely is it, that we as a church would, would live our entire existence, that we as a group of people would be gathered together, that we would live out our existence without doing that one thing? And if we don't do that one thing, are we then useless? That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we look at the second part of one verse in Isaiah 49, I want to pray with you. Would you pray with me? Isaiah, uh, God, we come to you now and we pray that you would uh, move in us, that you would move through this group of people, God, that in a, in a world so very dark, that we would be a light, that we would hear and recognize the purpose that you have laid out before us, the, the reason that you have called us together, that you would speak to us. God, that we would find and understand the purpose that you have given us, and then, God, we would live that out, that we would not risk the idea of living and being useless. God, we know that the world is dark, and I pray that we would be that light. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So like I said, Isaiah 49, if you're watching online, we are so glad that you are joining with us today. Those of you who are in the, the room this morning, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Just half of one verse, Isaiah 49, verse 6 says this, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. I, God, will make you, we're going to talk about that, a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's the one little bit of text that I want to pull out from the whole chapter, but I do think that it will summarize a lot of what's going on in chapter 49. The first question there, though, is whom or who is God speaking to? When he says, I will make you, who is the you that God is referring to? Well, this text is found in a grouping of texts, a number of chapters that are constantly referring to this character or this personality called the servant. In fact, some people call this section of text the servant songs. One of the most famous of these is what we call the suffering servant. And you'll hear that a lot around Easter time. It is this text or this revelation that God gave to Isaiah that Isaiah is preaching about this Person that would be the servant of God that would do the will of God. Now, what is a little bit confusing, although I'm, I'm totally positive that you could understand, and if we sat down and, and read it and I could work through it myself, is that sometimes the servant refers to Israel, and sometimes the servant refers to the coming Messiah, the anointed one, the one that would save them from outside oppression and from spiritual darkness. Sometimes it refers to the nation, the people of Israel, and sometimes it refers to the Messiah. And while that is all interesting and sometimes a little bit confusing because some of the text sounds like it's talking about the nation, some of the text sounds like it's talking about the Messiah, we're not going to look at that this morning because it would just take too much time. 
Instead, what I want to do is just give you a couple of um, handles by which we will, we will grasp this text and keep working through it. The first one is this. God created Israel, the nation, and gave it a purpose. Okay, when God formed the nation of Israel, he formed it not just to have some friends, not just to make his own friend group or, or to do a little experiment here. God created the nation of Israel in order to do something with a purpose in mind, but they refused to do it. They would not obey. They did not fulfill their purpose. They did not function in the one function that they were created to function in. And God, knowing that, before the foundations of the earth, had planned that one would come, a individual, a Messiah, an anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Same thing that Christ means. This one would come and be and do what Israel was supposed to do, but refused to do. And we know that that one, that servant, that Messiah, is Jesus. You see that all throughout the Bible. Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Matthew 10 45, Jesus himself speaks of himself in this way. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is Jesus that it is ultimately talking about. Now when Isaiah pins the words, when Isaiah preaches the message, Jesus is there looking forward to the Messiah, not knowing his name yet would be Jesus. We are looking back understanding that. The Messiah that they expected was much different than this though. They didn't expect a servant or a slave. They were looking for a champion or a hero or a victor. And that reason, and for that reason, they were often confused about what it was that Jesus would come and do, what it was that the Messiah would come and be. The servant imagery, though, shows us that God was not looking for a hero, but was instead looking for somebody that would fulfill and do his will. That's what servant means. A person who is a servant or a slave acts or does the will of the person that he serves. Acts or does the, the plan of the person that he or she serves. So when God says that I will make you a servant, he is talking about somebody who would do the will of God. That's very basic, it's very simple, but it's something that we need to understand and pick up and carry with us. The other kind of caveat that we need to understand there is if this servant, this you, refers to the coming Jesus, then what does God mean when he says, I will make you a servant? What does that make idea there be or, 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 or fulfill in? Well, obviously it doesn't mean the idea of creation or established because Jesus was pre-existent. Jesus is God just as God is God. So it has something else to do than other than creation. Think of it like this. You remember when Jesus was walking along the seashore and he says to a couple of brothers there, he says, follow me and I will, what? What did he say? I will make you fishers of men. Y'all remember that? He says, I will make, now they're, they're already born, so it's not the idea of being created. They already are, so it's not this concept of being created. Instead, it is a purpose. What God is saying is, I will bring about an individual, a, per a person who fulfills the purpose that Israel refused to obey. Israel refused to actually live up to. They did not do what I created them to do. Therefore, one is coming a servant that will do my will, that will fulfill a purpose, a specific purpose. For a short time before I went into full-time 
uh, church ministry, vocational ministry is what we call it. Before I did that, I was what's called a sheet metal hand, okay? So I did a lot of organizing. Sheet metal hand sounds like it's a skill job. It's not. I did a lot of organizing. I organized um, fittings and, and, and transition pieces for air conditioning units. I organized um, scrap pieces of sheet metal. I did a lot of, of sweeping the shop, uh, a ton of cleaning out other people's trucks. One of the big jobs that I had in my job description was to run back to the truck and get the tool or the piece that the person who knew what they were doing forgot. That was like my major job. I was just a helper. I was a servant. They had a plan. They had a design. They had a task that they knew how to get done. I was just there to fulfill helping that out. That's the closest I've ever been to being a servant, but it's the concept that is true. When a person is a servant of God, you just simply do what God wants you to do. That's what this you will be. I will also make you a servant. But the question then arises, what is that plan? What is the blueprint that God is following? What is the design or the objective or the course set by God that the servant was going to come and help with? That's the next phrase there. I will also make you a light to the nations. A light to the nations. This is interesting to me because it reminds us of something that no matter how many times we read it, we often forget about. And it is this, that from the very beginning, God always had a plan. God always had a heart. God always had a desire for the nations, for all of the people of the earth. We read the Bible and sometimes we read into the Bible this idea that at some point and in some ways God was more concerned or he was only concerned about a certain nation. We think back into the Bible and we look at that and think that God only loves that particular nation. And sadly, even today, people still walk around with this concept or this idea that God is only about or only concerned with one particular nation. And that has never been true. In fact... It is anti-truth and what God's gospel is about. God has always been about the nations. In Genesis 12, 3, as God is calling out Abraham to form what would later become the Jewish nation of Israel, this is what he says. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the people on the earth, all the peoples on the earth, I like that the Bible says that, all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. From the beginning, when God creates the nation of Israel, he meant for it to be good for the nations. In Genesis 18, 18, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. The light of the nation was God's plan from the very beginning, that through some servants of God, the nations, all of the people of the globe, would be blessed. This imagery of light and necessarily darkness flows all throughout the Bible as this cosmic reminder of the forces of good versus the forces of evil, of God versus those who would rebel against his order, of light versus dark. This is a theme. This is a poetic message that weaves all the way through the, the Bible from the very beginning when God said to the darkness, let there be lights, and there was light. The first idea is this concept of darkness. Darkness is a place of blindness. This is true both in your, in your 
real physical world. This is true in your soul. Darkness is a place of ignorance. It's a scary place. It's a place where things go bump in the night. Am I right? Darkness is a scary place. Darkness is a place of fear. It's in darkness that you cannot see. You don't know what is around the corner. You don't know what is in front of you because you are blind, because you cannot see. You are afraid of what might be and what might not be. Darkness is a place of isolation. You can be standing next to somebody that you love, somebody that you trust, somebody that you care about, and still find yourself feeling as though you are completely and totally alone. Darkness is a place of fear and of isolation. It's a place for searching and grasping for hope. Have you ever been in a circumstance in which the lights are suddenly turned off and you find yourself instinctively grasping for the edges of furniture or for the door frame or for the corner of the wall, finding out, trying to orient yourself to where you are because you can't see, you don't know, you're reaching out for something to help you. You're afraid, you're alone, you're reaching out for help because darkness is a prison. You may be able to move your body as much as you want to, but if you're in truly deep darkness, then the darkness on the outside creates a darkness on the inside that seems to swallow you up. Darkness is a scary place precisely because it is darkness. Maybe when you're a kid, how many of you have ever had this experience? Maybe when you were a kid or even recently, you're you're shutting down for the night, you're turning off the lights, you walk into your room and you suddenly discover there's an intruder in your room there's a monster there's a villain there's a demon sitting there in the corner your heart starts to race you start to get a little afraid and and you turn on the lights and you discover that was that's a that's clothes that you have not put up yet has that ever happened to anybody never happens to me i always put my clothes up but i'm sure jackie at some point has felt that before you know or maybe it's a jacket that you've thrown over that uh, treadmill that you're going to use one day. Whatever it is, the darkness creates these monsters in our lives. Darkness, because we cannot see what is there, it is a place of fear. It's a place of isolation. What happens in your room, in the dark, those monsters that appear, is the same thing that is happening in the souls and the lives of all the people that you know. That people who are apart from God are walking this life afraid and isolated and grasping in the dark, looking for some sort of orientation, looking for some sort of help, looking for some sort of answers. Why? Because they cannot see. They do not know. There is no reality to them. So they grasp and they create and they worship idols and they are afraid and they are alone and they act like people who are afraid and who are alone. Because darkness is a scary place. Conversely, light is different. By light, we know what is and what is not. This is a place of truth and things being consistent with reality. When you see the light spiritually, you are set free from that prison. You don't have to fear because you see people and power and self in light of God's plan and His directive and what He has disclosed. C.S. Lewis famously says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything. That's what Christianity does. That's what the light of Jesus, that's what the knowing of God does. That it brings light into a darkness. That's what Israel was supposed to do. That's what the Messiah did do. But the question at this point is who cares? Who cares if they see? Who cares if I see? Who cares if people come to know? 
Why does it matter if people just know something apparently? That if they just know what this is, and all of that is sort of summarized and displayed there in the next line of the verse. You are, to ma- you are going to be a light to the nations to be my, what? Salvation to the ends of the earth. Ends of the earth, again, just symbolizing or, or emboldening that idea of the nations. You are to be my salvation. Here's the deal. The darkness was caused by us. Humanity left the light. We ran towards the darkness. When we rebelled against God, we took on death and darkness. In fact, Jesus describes eternal hell as a place of outer darkness. That darkness is death, and death is the result of us rejecting the light. But, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Knowing the truth, or as we like to say, seeing the light, is what rescues them from the darkness. This is the message of hope. That darkness will kill us, but knowing Jesus calls us out of that darkness. That people are in danger of living a life and an eternity apart from God, and in that they reap death. In that they suffer. In that they die. And so why does it matter that Jesus was the light to the nations? Because you were in danger of death. Everyone is in danger of death. And yet when we turn our eyes towards Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, that salvation through that servant comes to us. Think about this, and I don't know if you ever have, but think about the way in which Jesus died in darkness. Luke 23, 44 says, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. Jesus died in darkness. Darkness was poured out on Jesus. Because we rebelled, Jesus took that penalty. Jesus took the death that we earned. Jesus took the bullet that we fired at ourselves. Jesus dies in darkness, and yet, as it is, as it, as it is described, Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection in the light. In the morning, When Jesus resurrects the archangel or the angel that comes to move the stone, this is how he is described. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes was as white as snow. Jesus dies in the darkness, but he beats death in the light. That's salvation. That's the hope. That's what Israel was supposed to tell the world, that you are born in darkness, but trust in God will bring you to light. But they refused to. They would not obey doing that. And so Jesus, the Messiah, comes, and that's the message that he preaches. That's the message that he displays. That's where people put their trust. But here's the cool thing. Well, I think this is cool. This is really neat. This is also extended to us. We, the church, we, the people of God, called out, are called out for this purpose, for this same purpose, to serve God and to show the light, to serve God and to be the light. When Jesus formed his church, this group that we are a part of, 100 years ago, when a group of people called together in Conway, Arkansas, drew together, they drew together for a purpose, and that purpose was to display God's light to the world. Why? So that they would know and that they would be saved. 1 Peter 2 9 says this, but you, you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may, listen to this, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into glorious light. That's what we are. This is what we do. This is our function, to be a light so that people can be saved. To be a light so that people will know the very thing that Israel refused to do, the thing that the Messiah came to do, is the thing that Jesus formed us to do. Now Jesus does it, but we are the ones who display it. We proclaim the good news. We say the good news. We share the gospel message. That's what I'm doing right now. That's what we do in our preaching and our teaching ministry. When you include people into your small group and you share the gospel message, that is what we do. We share and show the light but we not only share it but we show it we display the light it's not just words it's actions Matthew 5 16 says this in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father which is in heaven this is what we do as a church, we are gathered together, all the generations, all of the people, all of the backgrounds, all of the cultures, we are gathered together to display God's light to the nations. So what do we do with that, and how do we do that? Well, first of all, it's pretty simple. We serve God. We serve at the pleasure of God. We do what God wants us to do. Now, some of you are wired in a certain way. Some of you are of a certain age in which this idea of being a servant to somebody else really just kind of uh, rubs. It's too much friction. It's not something that you really like. In fact, if you were to negotiate with God, you would say something like this, God, I'm cool with your plan. I want to do my thing. And how about we partner together? Less of a servant situation. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't like to serve things. Instead, how about we just partner with one another? But here's the harsh reality, or really the freeing reality, depending on how you look at it. You will serve something. Every person serves something or someone. It might be your own base desires. It might be your own lust for money or pride or power or just your constant need to escape and be safe and secure. But you will live your life, leverage your resources, and invest your time toward something. You can either do God or other. It's your choice, God or other. But here's the truth. The darkness keeps you from seeing that all others lead to death and only God is freeing and salvation which leads to life so first of all we serve God we serve at his discretion I don't really care what anybody else tells this church what to do this church serves God that's what we do and we are a light so we serve God and we are a light I've already told you that light means your actions it's what you do right You'll, you'll do your good works so that they can, um, your light will shine and they'll see your good works and glorify your Father. That's what light means. But somewhere along the lines throughout culture and the history of the church, we have um, put light over in the category of personality. 
We think light is the people who are big and bubbly and full of life. We're like, baby, you're a firework, right? And so that's the light that's over there. And if you're not a firework, then you're just really not light. We leave it over there for those people. And we think that only those people, oh man, that dude, he is a light to the nations. That, that girl, man, she is a light in her community. And really what we're saying there is their personalities are big. Their personalities are bold. But hear me on this. I don't think God cares about how big your personality is when he tells you to be a light. I think the real thing is just contrast and not glare. That you would just contrast with the darkness. That you would push into the darkness and you would be a light in the darkest of places. But what does that look like? What does that look like on November 8th, 2020? What does it look like to be a light? I think here's a few. I think right now just any sort of calming voice would be contrasting. Someone saying with confidence that only comes from heaven's throne, it will be all right. It will be fine. Why? Because we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. I think that's really contrasting. It's calming. Anyone who can love those, and I mean actually truly love those whom you disagree with would be a light in the dark right now. If you could actually love people the way that God told us to love people, I think you would be a light in the darkness. You don't have to be bold and flashy about it. You just have to be faithful with it. If you could find a chance to be consistent and true with what you have always said that you believe, then that would be shocking. It would be a flame in a dark night right now. Warm and illuminating. If you could just value the person and discuss the idea if we could be the sort of people that sees all people as created in the image and that ideas, not people, are what we discuss and try to understand, then I think right now that would be a blinding light in our world, in our community, and in our nation. That we would value people over ideals. So we are to serve God, we're to be a light so that they can be saved. This really speaks to why we do what we do, so others can come to know the truth. I think it's important that we share and show the gospel in everything we do. We want to connect others to Jesus and invite them to our church. You know what the difference between being nice and being a light is? What's the difference between being nice and being a light? Eternity. We should be nice, but if all we are is nice, people go to hell. We should help the needy, feed the hungry, care for the hurting, mourn for those who mourn, all of that. But if that is all we do, people are still in the dark. We must, and this is wildly important, we must go into the darkness to show the light of Jesus Christ and call people toward Jesus. That's what being a light is. It's not just being nice. It's being nice so that they will hear and see the gospel. In the late 1800s, America was struggling or trying to decide what it is we are going to do with electricity. One of the big challenges that has faced humanity forever, it feels, is this idea of lighting up the night, of lighting pathways or, or darkened streets. The ancient Romans had, a, had slaves. The, the wealthy ancient Romans had particular slaves or servants whose whole job was to keep a lantern ready. 
And once they wanted to walk outside in the night, this servant or this slave would carry that lantern in front of them and walk them down the street. At one point in London's history, they actually made a law that you, if your house faced a street or a pathway, then you were required at dusk to light a lantern. You were required at dusk to light a lantern and you put it in your window or put it out on um, a hanging device in order to light those pathways. But Americans, we like to do things big. And with electricity, we decided to make moons. That was our plan. It first happened in Aurora, Illinois. Uh, I said that last, it's not Illinois, Josh. Aurora, Illinois, all right? It's like Walmarts, all right? So first in Aurora, Illinois, and then later it spread to Detroit. These ideas of building these massive towers with lamps on the top of them, arc lamps. They had two to 6,000 candle power each. I have no idea what 6,000 candle power is, but it's kind of bright, kind of not that bright, especially in our modern terms here. They called these things moonlight towers or moon towers. Detroit also uh, ordered a ton of these. They're 150 feet tall, and they're held up not only by the steel, but also by these cables all stretching across streets. In fact, I read a story about one guy who was so mad at the aesthetics of it that he tried to chop it down. He was striking at the cable that was in his yard, and he was thrown in prison. People thought that these lights were going to be the solution to their nighttime darkness problems. They were convinced that once they established these moon towers, that there would be no need for police or law enforcement anymore because nobody, nobody doing nefarious things had any place to hide. They were often concerned that there would be vegetation overgrowth because of these moon towers. People in these cities, Aurora and, and Detroit and other areas, these people um, would go outside in the evenings and use an umbrella to, to protect their skin from the excess moonlight um, that they were getting there. They were really putting their faith and their trust and their hope in these moon towers. In 2013, Megan Garber wrote for The Atlantic a piece on moon towers. This is what she wrote. Light was suddenly everywhere, even and especially where nature had not intended it to be. Night became not night. The day broadened its reach and joy ensued. One visitor from Chicago described Aurora's citizens to be in a state of delighted enthusiasm over the splendid practical results. The moonlight towers, he declared, were a most brilliant success. Joy had ensued. This is the effect of light. Night is scary precisely because it is dark. These towers in the late 19th century Americans' minds were the solution to the age-old problem, and it caused great joy. This is the way light is. It reveals and shows what is there and it brings joy, and it is a good thing. But something you may have noticed, we don't have moon towers today. We don't still have moon towers, except for that weird city in Texas called Austin that has 17 of these, and they still light them up every night. We don't have moon towers in the United States. Why? Because it caused more problems than it actually helped. 
These weird shadows were cast in the night. It was disorienting to people. And in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, it didn't end up lighting up the night. It just ended up lighting up a bunch of smog and dust and pollution that we were creating. So they got rid of these things in favor of a different solution. They got rid of these moon towers in favor of something that you are used to. Street lights and porch lights. Street lights and porch lights were far better. Why? Because the light was closer to the ground and it was spread out more. It was far more practical. It was far safer. It was far more helpful because one source of light, as Megan wrote, the problem with the singularity of lights is its singularity. That it was safer and it was better to bring the light down and to spread it out. So the next time you flip on your porch lights or you walk with a friend in the evening and you can see where you are and you feel safer, I want you to think about this. I want you to be reminded that God had the plan in the first place. God had that plan long before to spread out the light. Each individual house, every mile across the street and around the world, you are the light. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.